So this is a galaxy, okay? even that doesn't look like the galaxies you probably see in movies, but this is a galaxy, it's an elliptical galaxy, and what you see here is this dark band here, it's just dust. Okay? If you have dust and you have a source of light behind that dust cloud, the light will not get to you. So what happens is that this bright blob is behind or is at the core of this dust cloud, and the bright light coming from that core of the galaxy gets blocked by this uh, uh, cloud of dust. But fortunately, we have telescopes that look at different wavelengths. It's just not the visible wavelength, X-ray and uh, gamma rays and uh, radio waves. So what I have here is the same galaxy, but now here at the bottom are four different snapshots of the same galaxy, but taken with different telescopes. The one here on the left that is a, a blue one, perhaps. So this blue, light, blue picture here was taken by a telescope, a space telescope called Chandra. It's not the Hubble Space Telescope, it's Chandra. And Penn State built one of the main detectors that go into that. Our astronomy department at Penn State is known by building instruments. And one of them is in that telescope that took the same picture, a picture of the same galaxy, but now in the X-ray. And now you can see different features here. You can see, again, that bright dot. This is the optical that I have uh, shown before. Here is in the radio. This is in a radio telescope. And here again also in the radio. And you see that there is different structure there as you look at different frequencies. Now, astronomers go and make estimates about the energy that comes from those bright spots there. And it will be very difficult to explain that just by a collection of stars. It has to be something else there that is producing that that type of energy. Here is another example, and once again, you see that there is uh, something, a source of light very bright at the core of a galaxy. Okay? Three, this is the same galaxy, but looking at the core of the galaxy, and here are a picture of the same area in the sky in which this dot is brighter, and it just only took three months to get brighter. Now, in astronomy, scales of three months are very, very, very short. You know. Stars live billions of years, so a three-month span, a human timeline, is very, very short. So here we had to have something that is so extreme that can change in the span of three months. Okay? And that, again, you can, the, only, the only objects that can produce that type of variability are black holes. Okay? Here is another one. This is actually a galaxy that looks pretty much like our own galaxy. This is not our galaxy, otherwise we wouldn't have a picture of it. Okay, so we have that spiral arms, we have the core, okay. and there are these red dots that are ultra-luminous X-ray sources. And again, the energetics of that, the type of emission that you get, can only be explained so far by the existence of black holes that are about 10,000 times the mass of our sun. Okay. And finally, okay, the one that I just want to end this, this is... This is not an animation. This is actual data, astronomical data. So what you see there, those white blobs that move are stars. Those stars are at the core, at the center of our own galaxy. So this is an amazing observation. It can really happen just a few years ago, or I mean the last 10 years or so, because of the telescopes that we have. So what happened here is that they put together the same observations okay, since 1992. If you can see the date here, it goes 1992 all the way to 2006. So they look at the same region in the center of the galaxy and monitor the motion of the stars 
Okay. Now you see one of them, let me just, one of them completes an orbit already, this one here. Okay. So if you go and look at the, you don't have to go to fancy general relativity or anything like that, just look at Newtonian physics, Kepler's laws, and by measuring the orbit of an object, you can tell the mass of the orbit, uh, the mass of the object that this other one is orbiting around. An example is the Earth. If you have a good uh, measurement of the orbit's Earth and the mass of the Earth, you can tell the mass of the Sun. Okay? So what they did here is the same thing. We know the mass of those stars because they are typical stars. Okay? So by knowing the mass of the star and the path that these stars have, we conclude that the only thing that is possible to be at the center producing the gravity that makes those stars orbit is a supermassive black hole with a mass of three million solar masses. It's like putting three million suns all together. Now you can say, well, why is it that it's just not just three million stars all together packed there? Well, the main reason is that we will see them, right? And we don't see anything. You see how dark it is. There is no emission there that we see that could be explained by uh, three million stars. The other thing is that if you put stars so close together, they will come together because of the gravity, and they collapse, and they will form a black hole. Okay? So this is one of the strongest evidence that, that uh, we have in favor of the existence of black holes. And they come in all masses. They come solar mass all the way to these supermassive black holes. So right now I was just telling you that there is this object that is small in size and has very strong gravity. Okay? Now, however, so far the evidence is only indirect. You can complain, look, I mean, you have not shown me that the black hole uh, physical object is there. We have, I show you pictures similar to this, in which we have huge amount of energy coming from a small place that cannot be explained by putting stars together. So that is one, roughly speaking, one. The other one is we have, this is the same thing as the movie that I just showed in the previous slides. Here is the complete orbit of this object, uh, uh, the one in the, in, the, in, the, in the middle. So we have objects orbiting dark companions. By dark, it means that we don't see them. Okay? So that is indirect evidence that we have so far. We don't have direct evidence that the black hole, but it's pretty much, uh, I mean, for uh, those of us that are in this business, I mean, you know, what do you say? It walks like a dog or swims like a dog. <laughs> it has to be one, right? So, all right, so now let's talk about black holes. Okay, just, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna give you a course in black hole. I just want to give you a sense of what a black hole is. Okay, so if you grab the Earth, okay, suppose that you have the ability of doing the following experiment, okay, you take the Earth, do not change its mass. The only thing that you change is the volume, where that mass is. So go and shrink the Earth to the size of a golf ball. At that point, you have formed a black hole. What do I mean by that? As John Wheeler used to say, at that time, the, the Earth becomes a black hole. Why? Because the gravity in the surface of that golf ball that has the mass of the air is so strong that not even light can escape there. Okay? And that's what we mean by having a black hole. Okay? And actually, John Wheeler was the one who uh, came up with his name, a black hole. The idea of a black hole is actually, uh, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it was not uh, John Wheeler the one who came up with it, but he was the one who came up with the name. So this is... This is just to get a sense of what you have to, I mean, what the type of objects you are dealing with, okay? So the same mass as the Earth, you change the volume to that of a golf ball, and you get a black hole. Yes? 
And more than compression is what we call compactness. Okay, compactness is mass in certain volume. Okay, all right. And you can have black holes of any sizes. The theory doesn't restrict. You can have a black hole with the mass of the mass that you have. It will be extremely small, but I mean you can still do. So now let me give you an, another scale. This is the sun. This is a, a photograph of the sun. Okay, you see the flares and all the activity. Suppose that you grab again the mass of the sun and shrink the volume. What will be the size of the black hole? Well, here is. I was disappointed that Google Earth doesn't have a clear picture of state college. I guess we're not important enough. But anyway, here is state college. I, mean, I guess we're somewhere here. Okay. So just to give you an idea, if you if you make a black hole out of the mass containing the sun, this is the this is the black hole that you will be forming. Okay. This is the this is the cross section of a black hole, superimposed in the map of the of the state college. All right, so just very quickly, I'm going to give you a 30 seconds course in general relativity. Okay, here it is. Okay, you have the matter tells space times how to curve. It's just similar to what, you know, if you have a kid with a trampoline, you put some weights. Depending on the mass, it will be the curvature in the surface of that trampoline that we'll be uh, experiencing. At the same time, if you put a little pebble here and, and throw it, the trajectory that that little uh, pebble will follow. It will be dictated by the curvature of space-time. So it works both ways. Matter tells space-time how to curve, and the space-time curvature tells matter how to move. If you want to put it in terms of equation, this is the only equation that I have. These are Einstein equations. You can actually write it in a t-shirt if you want to. So you have geometry on the left-hand side, and you have matter in the, in the right-hand side, and they're equivalent. This is, to some extent, not the same. Remember that another famous equation that Einstein had, actually more famous, is the one that energy is equal to mc squared, is the equivalence of energy and matter. Here is the equivalence of geometry and matter. Now, as in the introduction, what I do is numerical relativity. It's another word by saying these equations are so complicated that analytic solutions, pencil and paper solutions, are very few and restricted to systems that are not interested astrophysically. So in order to get some astrophysical solutions to Einstein equations, we had to do it in a computer. That's all it is. But they are very, very difficult to solve. And I'm just going to show you that actually uh, the timing is just perfect. Just in the last year and a half, we as a community managed to solve these equations for interesting problems. Okay? We had to use computers of this magnitude. The one in the left is a supercomputer in Pittsburgh, and the supercomputer center in Pittsburgh. The one in the right is what is called the Earth Simulator, is in Japan, and that is the fastest computer so far um, uh, in the world. We're trying to get one here in the States that is faster. I think it, that will happen in the next few months or, or maybe a year. And just to give you an idea how long it takes to do the simulations that we do, with this computer, this is another computer in NASA, in, in California, it will take a week to do the simulations that I'm going to show you in these computers. That's what it takes. If you have a calculator and you're fast adding numbers, take a while, guess how, how long will it take? Take millions of years. <laughs> Just to give you an idea. Okay? So this, the point that I'm trying to make, of course, is unfair the comparison, is that Without the hardware, this line of research will not be at the stage that it is right now. All right, here are two simulations of one black hole. 
Okay? In the early years, by the, that means in you know, around 2000 or so, or earlier, we were only able to do one black hole. It was so difficult to do it, we can put a black hole just doing some crazy stuff there. And uh, just to be able to see if our numerical codes were stable enough to solve Einstein equations and get solutions to black holes. But they were very short-lived. It was not interesting. I mean, you don't see black holes in the universe just doing this type of thing. It was just a testing phase. Okay? We were into more interesting uh, situations. These are head-on collisions of black holes. But again, the separations were very small, and, and things were not that interesting at that point. This happened about a year and a half ago. Several groups, including the one that we have here in Penn State, managed to find a way to defeat Einstein equations and get solutions in which you had two black holes orbiting each other and uh, forming a single black hole. The red and, and, and blue spirals are the gravitational. I'm just going over the same movie. The stars in the background are fake. It's just that my postdoc wanted to be more artistic about it. <laughs> And the real thing is, is the red and blue stuff. Okay, so this is where we are right now. And what we're trying to do is to put more physics to the, to the problems that we solve. All right, here is another case. This is a black hole. It's black, but I put it green so you can see it. And the one around is a neutron star. That is an object that is not like a normal star. It's not as, as dramatic as a black hole. It's somewhere in between. And we had two different situations in which one, the star gets disrupted and there is a material that hopefully will go into the black hole and then produce this energy release that I show you in the pictures. All right, why? Okay, so now I'm done with providing evidence that black holes exist, are there. Uh, I've also told you already a little bit about what a black hole is and what we do. Now the question is, uh, I had to justify my existence here, right? So why doing this work? Okay, it's very expensive. You know, you spend, you know, faculty involved in this, postdoc students, many years doing this. Why is it that, from my point of view, the reason that I'm in this in this work is because of the following: Einstein's theory of relativity also predicts not only that black holes uh, um, are part of the solution, not only the curvature can be changed by mass, but also waves. In the same way that, the, that uh, you, can, you, can sh you can move uh, back and forth a charge and you produce light, electromagnetic radiation, you can also move objects and produce gravitational waves. As we speak, there are gravitational waves going through this room. Okay? So the thing that, I, that we're working on is the following. If you have that waves are ripples in space-time, similar to what those ripples are produced when you drop a rock into still water, or if you have this dock you know, moving and producing waves around, the idea is the following, is that by studying the waves, those are the things that we can detect here, hopefully we can say something about the source that produced those waves. By say something, by have a direct evidence that the black hole was the source of those waves. So those waves are extremely strong in the vicinity of the object, a black hole, neutron star. But when they arrive on the Earth, they are extremely weak. And I'll give you a sense of how weak they are. So we need numerical simulations to be able to help the experiments to detect those waves. And I'll give a, a specific example. So, how, will, how those laboratories that I, that I mentioned, one in, in Louisiana and the other one in Washington, and there is other one in Europe, how do they do 
Well, what is the idea behind to detect these waves? Suppose that you have a waves like this. Okay? One possibility to detect the waves is you get, you finish three bottles of wine, you get the corks from those, okay, not so quickly, hopefully, and you put them in the surface of the water, okay, and let the wave go by and measure the separation of those three corks, okay. By doing that, which is called interferometer, okay, this, the range of that, you can completely characterize the wave that produces those changes in those corks. You can do it. Okay. That one is, is not magic. You can actually go back and characterize the wave, the amplitude and the frequency and how it changes with time. So that is basically what these huge instruments are doing. The one here in the desert is in Washington State. The one here with uh, trees is the one in Louisiana. Now, these are three miles long. So those three corks, you, in this case, are mirrors. One of them is here. The other one is at the end of each of these arms. There's three miles from here to here, okay? It's in vacuum. It's the largest vacuum system in the world, okay? And uh, you have light going back and forth. The reason that you have light, because that is a way to check the distance between those two mirrors. And by detecting the separation, the changes in the separation of the mirrors, you can reconstruct the wave, and you can say what uh, was the source that produced that, okay? Now, the changes that we're talking about here is 10,000th of a proton radius. So imagine, I mean, I, I'm a theorist. So I'm always amazed by what the uh, instrumentalists do. Three kilometers separation. You had these mirrors, and you had to detect changes in the separation much smaller than the proton radius. And proton is a subatomic uh, uh, sub particle. Now, it's, not, it's suspected that because they are on the Earth, the, the, the seismic movement of the Earth is one of the main sources of noise. But it's not, there, there were surprises too. Actually, this is a desert, there are tumbleweeds. There's also a source of noise. They go and hit the instruments that you had to take into account. Here, they didn't realize that there was a substantial logging taking place in, in Louisiana. So you can, you, can, you, you can see 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 when they start doing that, you can see that the instrument starts generating more noise. Okay. Uh, it was not damaged by the hurricane, Katarina. I mean, it was, it was actually, the, the, the main damage it came from a fire a few years ago, but uh, it, it survived because it's enclosed in, in. All right, and there are plans to do this same thing in Earth. Here are your three quarks, but now it's five million kilometers apart. Okay? And they're gonna detect, again, changes in the separation of that. So that is a, an amazing engineering uh, enterprise. The problem is that right now NASA is not in good shape, so we don't know if they're going to put the money to, to do this thing. It will be orbiting behind the Earth, this constellation of 5 million kilometers apart, will be orbiting the sun a little bit behind the Earth. This is not drawn to scale, but it will be just a little behind. And uh, just so you know how difficult this thing is, one of the key things that happen is that once that they go in orbit, how they will find each other. Imagine an object, and I'm not joking, these this things here are the size of these two tables together. Okay? So you have three of them, five million kilometers apart, and they had to find each other. They had to be able to see each other to be able to, to shine a light one from another. There are only few photons that arrive to each end station once that they are produced by. All right, so last couple of slides, so we can just talk and have the conversation. So the instrument 
delivers data that is quite noisy. Okay? We will be lucky if it's something like this. So what I have here is the signal. Basically what they do is to look at the separation. So think about in the horizontal, in the vertical direction, like a measure of the separation of the mirrors as a function of time. We will be lucky if we have data like this. Actually, we're not going to have data like that. Because then you, you can tell already that there is a signal there. It's noisy, but there is a signal. And the signal is something like that. This is what is called a sinusoidal way. Okay? That will be, it's, it's almost impossible that we get that because that would imply that the gravitational winds are too strong. What we get is something like this, Mosey. Actually, this is real data. Yeah. Now you will say, yeah, there is something here, and I can detect other bumps here and there. Okay? This is the data that we get. So our job, I mean, that, our job, the ones that we are in numerical relativity doing simulations of black holes and other objects that are sources of these uh, waves, is to come up with models and that give the profile of those waves. And this is one of them. This is actually from one of the black hole simulations. They look like this. So when you go and correlate this wave with the, with the noise, you should be able to dig out the signal from it. Now it turns out that even that it looks like it could be something like this because it's flat and then comes up and down, this is not this signal, okay? uh, a signal like this. This is an earthquake. Okay. So the detectors are so sensitive that they can detect earthquakes. Not only that, they can detect the waves here in the, the, the Pacific Line coast. So they are extremely, so they had to account for that. They even detected the tsunami that happened a few years ago. So these instruments are very, very impressive. So this is the part that uh, right now, this is the main focus of, of the research of my students, collaborators, to come up with these waveforms that could be used in the data analysis effort to be able to extract the, the signal. Now, you're going to say, yeah, but you haven't told me, you don't have evidence that it's a black hole. Well, these waveforms are like fingerprints. Okay? Only, in this case, only black holes can produce that. If I show you waves from a neutron star are different. The ones from a supernova are also very different. So these are like fingerprints, so we can then have a, there is no other way to explain the signal if it matches that, uh, that type of profile. All right, so the message that I want to leave you with is the following. We have definitely entered an era of multi-messenger astronomy. That is, we not only have the traditional astronomy that is based on photons, that for instance is what the Hubble Space Telescope is gathering. We have also astronomy that is based in high energy uh, particles like this detector that is at, uh, uh, in the ground. But also now we're going to have gravitational waves. And we know that every time that we look at the universe in a different wavelength or with a different messengers, we discover new things. We discover a new view of the universe. So what we're trying to see is to open the window of the universe that will be viewed through gravitational waves. So what happened is that... Uh, uh, each of the black holes okay, is accelerating as they spiral in. And they bend space-time okay, to produce this spiral pattern that you saw in one of the movies. Okay? That spiral pattern, if you are standing in one location looking at it, this is what you see. You know, the wave comes and it's getting larger and larger because this, they are getting closer and closer together. So this is as a function of time. Okay? Right. And uh, you're sitting there. 
is, uh, let, let me give you the following. Uh, suppose that uh, somebody can grab two sticks and start moving it around in circles uh, about each other, okay, in the water, okay, then you will create a spiral pattern just like that. And if you are in a little canoe, you know, seeing the waves, as they do it faster, faster, and faster, not only the frequency will change, you can see here that it's getting tighter and tighter, the separation between each of these peaks, but also the amplitude. And that has encoded okay, not only the motion of these two objects, but the type of object that, that, that we're dealing with. No, it's not a snapshot. It's, it's a function of time. So I'm sitting here, the system is evolving, and it's sending me waves. And what I'm just looking is how high the waves are. Okay, is the amplitude of the wave. I just have, a, I just have a, a, a ruler to measure the amplitude of the wave as a function of time, as the waves are going by. Actually, that's another question. The units here is we use some weird units, but this takes place in less than two seconds. Yeah, it's about one or two seconds for these black holes. Right, right. But this, I mean, you can see here, they put the time in seconds here. So this is not a black hole. It's too, too long. I mean... Uh, a, let me see, so this is about 50 seconds, which is what an earthquake typically lasts, oh, hopefully, I mean, at least that one. Does that, sound, or does that wave keep repeating itself? No, once that the black hole merges and forms a single black hole, this, the black holes ring like a bell, but it's yeah. just damping, damping until it's quiet. It's like a one-note bell. And That's right. That, and it just completely dies out. So you're looking for an event that only lasts a few seconds. That's right. So that's another point. People invest uh, time estimating what is the event rate for this to happen. And of course, you had to have the ability to look at larger and larger distance because the larger the volume, the chances are that you, you catch other black holes merging. So the estimate so far is that for the instrument like LIGO, this interferometer I'm talking about, that it's going to be probably no more than five events, five black hole mergers per year that we'll be able to detect. And each of them lasts just a few seconds, so we have to be ready for that. Okay, so would you agree that humans have a curiosity of knowing what happens in your neighborhood? I mean, you, you move to a different place, you want to see what kind of neighbors you have or, or which places to go hiking and all that, right? I think that, and that curiosity could have some impact in your everyday life, but probably some of that information will not, right? So I think if you want to be uh, put it in those terms, I mean, this is just to know the place where, you know, the house where we live. Okay, now to have direct impact, the knowledge of the black hole, or if, if a black hole is going to have, you change the economy or, or change uh, thing, no. But the, what I can tell you is that the technology has developed thanks to efforts like this. I'm not saying that it's the only one, but we, have, we are one of the largest uh, users of supercomputer uh, time in the country besides the one that goes for uh, defense-related work, okay? But we're, we're one of the largest on that. Uh, we're also the numerical techniques that we develop, some of them are quite innovative, so that could help to do things, for instance, in engineering or other areas. But uh, this type of work, the same thing about learning if the universe is expanding or is collapsing, I mean, it's, will it have a, uh, an effect uh, directly? 
Probably not. But it's, you know, I think we're all curious about where we live. In the context of black holes, it probably doesn't have a significant effect except in the formation of the black holes and the probably primordial black holes. It depends. Uh, the, the way that the universe evolves has some imprint in the type of objects that we form. Okay? So the expansion of the universe, or if it's not expanding, or acceleration of the universe, has an effect on how the matter structure collapsed to form galaxies, and then from those galaxies to form supermassive black holes like this, uh, or the ones that are the stellar mass. But uh, if these simulations need to include, or studying these binaries, do we need to include effects from dark matter and dark energy? No. This, the scales here are much smaller. Okay? That uh, the effects from the expansion of the universe uh, are not relevant. What is relevant is how the waves travel from the point where the black holes merge to the Earth. <coughs> the frequency will be changed. There will be some changes due to this dark energy or dark matter, but it doesn't have an effect on the black holes themselves. And indeed, the, most of the matter in the universe is, is dark energy. The second is dark matter, and matter like the one in this room is very, very little. Okay, all right, so that's a very, very good question. Uh, uh, Einstein theory, <coughs> allows for the two solutions, okay? So both solutions, that that represents a black hole and the one of a wormhole are part of the theory. Now the question is which one is the one that nature allows to be present? We believe that black holes is one of them, but a wormholes could, in principle there is, there are certain laws that, or principles that we believe that, you know, not uh, having, uh, some conditions on the energy that cannot be negative or, or time travel. The problem with those uh, wormholes is that you have to impose some conditions in how the wormholes uh, behave to prevent you from going from a wormhole, coming back and you know, doing something to your uh, uh, you know, people that have already died or people in the future. So we don't allow, it's not that we don't allow, we just find it difficult to believe in, in time travel, especially going back um, in the past. And those solutions allow that. So what uh, happens is that we have to preserve some conditions that make the wormholes that if you try to travel through, they basically shrink and you cannot tra traverse the, the, the wormholes. But in principle, you know, never knows. I mean, you have to be you have to be open-minded, but also not go too crazy about it. You know, you just uh, wait for the evidence and be open to it. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Okay, so it's, it's mostly vacuum because we had to isolate it from uh, uh, um, uh, um, the atmosphere. So the, the wind will not... It's just two mirrors and very powerful lasers. They shine light, and it goes between the, 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 the two mirrors. That, that's basically it. You, it's, it's, it's just like the corks that I, that I was talking You just have to have these mirrors playing the role of those corks, and you measure the separation by measuring how the light travels and bounces back and forth. So it's mostly vacuum. The most expensive part of it was vacuum, 
okay? Plus covering them because there is hunting taking place of that, so you had to prevent uh, you know, bullets from making holes in that. They're actually very simple. I mean, they're, they're, it's only, I, I didn't have a slide of that, but there are only three, we call it, uh, that black holes have no hair, but three. And the hair, that they, by hair we mean that, you know, you can tell one person from another one by looking at the hair, right? You know, you can see some of those have, you know, gray hair, other ones not, and so. So the black hole has only three hairs. The mass is one piece of information. The, how rapidly they rotate, and if they are charged, if they have charge. Now, it happens that in astronomy, it's very difficult to have a charged object, okay? In astronomical distances, you have to separate the charges, okay? So we believe that for in astrophysics, charged black holes probably don't exist. Okay, so it's only spin and all. So they're quite simple when they're by itself. So, in, in terms of of that, I found that uh, an object that is so simple, once that you study it and look at the physics that happens in the vicinity or even inside here, there in, in our center here. People study what happens, uh, they look inside of a black hole. We will never see inside, but that doesn't mean that the theory doesn't allow you to look. I think that uh, it, gives you, it gives you a perspective of uh, doing research that, uh, in, in my opinion, is more open to entertain uh, different possibilities. That is not, okay, let's just pretend, let's just assume that things are, you know, that doesn't allow room for you know, strange effects. So in that sense, I mean, black holes have changed my personal, to be more open to strange effects, okay? And actually, to the point that uh, I'm involved in a collaboration with a colleague in Case Western Reserve that we're doing a calculation to prove that perhaps black holes never form, which it goes against my beliefs, but nonetheless, it's interesting to go and see if it, if it can be uh, shown or not. Uh, actually, what's very, very strange the way it started, uh, I st I, I'm originally from Mexico, and uh, I started my bachelor's in math. It only took me two months to reali realize that my brain wasn't going to be uh, good enough for math. So what is the next thing? Physics. Okay, so I started in physics. And in physics, the closest at that time that it was to math was uh, uh, general relativity. And uh, when I was a graduate student in Texas, my supervisor pointed to me and said, look, there is this opportunity with LIGO, with this uh, instrument, that by the time that you graduate, uh, by the time that you graduate, this instrument is going to be operational. Okay? And then this type of, of research will, be, will become astronomy. So I, I, I became interested in that, and I said, well, okay, let's, let, it's not unusual to do that. At the same time, I had some friends that were getting into high energy uh, physics because of the super collider that was supposed to be built in Texas, okay? Now it's just a mushroom uh, farm. <laughs> and uh, it's perfect because it's dark and it's underground and they have their, so, some, but that one failed. It didn't get funded, so they had to switch to another field. I was not as dependent on the building this instrument, but it's very nice to have. Now, we have students that we have been telling them that this will happen in 2016 or 17, hopefully. So by then, they will be in the same situation that I am. And the last thing that changed things, and that was very, very lucky, is that 
uh, when I got a, a job offer from this place, it was in the astronomy department. Okay, and uh, I I will not. I mean, if I, I was lucky because that was a very unusual situation that they hired somebody doing this type of research in astronomy. Now they knew that there was a big center created in physics that does general relativity, so it's not that I was going to be isolated. But I, I have benefit tremendously being in the astronomy department to be able to connect things that could be otherwise too theoretical to astronomical um, uh, data and, and research. I was interested in math because I had a horrible physics teacher. <laughs> but I was, I, I, think, I think physics would have been, all, uh, is, I mean, the thing is, uh, I, I don't have very good memory, so biology and chemistry, even that you involve de deriving things, but you, re you require more memory for that. <laughs> and uh, actually, my family, they mostly lawyers and so, so they didn't see that thing. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, yes, so I said, well, math, I don't have to memorize that much. And they said, well, physics is similar to that. And, uh, and, and then uh, the other is sometimes it's just luck and finding as I tell my students, or the ones who want to work with me, you have to optimize three things. What you like, what you are good at it, and what it sells. <laughs> right? The thing is, the sell part sounds a little bit, uh, but the thing is that it's difficult to continue enjoying what you do if there are not funding, if there are no universities like Penn State that are interested in this type of research. So, and uh, that's what I always look. I mean, see, uh, I wasn't good at math to the point of being a mathematician. Then I discovered I, uh, at that time that I was back in Mexico, computers were, you know, were not there. Even when I was in Texas, researching computers was still not. Uh, uh, but uh, later I found out that uh, I had some skills to do computational work, so I went in that, even that originally I wanted to do things, pencil and paper and proof theorems and things like that. So it's just to be open to maximize those three things. I mean, if I were to suppose that I started again, this, there is a very interesting research right now in, in you know, biophysics or, or uh, nonlinear dynamics that perhaps, given you know, how random sometimes life is, that I would have gone in that direction. But I, I was not expected to study black holes when I was a kid. Well, that is the discussion or that is a conversation that I have with my colleague, a friend of mine, that we have already written papers about all the subject, is that in my opinion, he has uh, a very strict definition of what a black hole is, okay? And uh, even if by his definition a black hole never forms, okay, I think that it will act as a black hole until the end of time. So let, let me just try to explain what we're after, okay? If, if you have, suppose that there is a black hole in our neighborhood, okay, and you have a flashlight, okay, and, uh, and you're able to send signals as you fall into a black hole, okay, to your friend that is safely away from there. So you're falling into a black hole and you're sending signals, okay. So what happens is that from an, from an observer that is far, far, far away, he will never see the person actually crossing the black hole. So it will, that one, you can estimate that what happens is that as you get closer and closer to the black hole, the strong gravity of the black hole 
basically makes the light to not to slow down, but I mean makes this 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 person to to that the signals would take longer and longer to arrive. The speed of light is the same. It's just the signals will take longer and longer to arrive. And you will have to wait until the end of times to see that person going through the black hole. So then what, there is this other effect that you probably have here, Stephen Hawking about black hole evaporation. The black holes radiate, they evaporate. They're not that black. But you have to add quantum effects for that. So. His point is that if you had to wait until the end of times, that the black hole will evaporate before you actually cruise across the black hole, so the black hole never, never forms. So that's, that's kind of a hand-waving thing. So I think that uh, it's, it's, it depends on how strict you are with some of these definitions. But uh, we came up with a simple numerical experiment, because again, we cannot solve the things with pencil and paper that we're currently doing to see if indeed a black hole evaporates before something crosses in. That doesn't mean that we're going to prove the black hole. I, in my opinion, nobody's going to think that we are proving the black holes don't exist, but it's a very interesting uh, experiment. I did not hear the question. I would like to know the question so I could put a context. Oh, okay, all right. So I mentioned that I have a collaborator in Case Western Reserve that we're right, but there is some quantum effects that the black hole radiates. It emits a little bit of light, okay? So as it emits a little bit of light, that is energy, and since energy is mass, so the mass of the black hole decreases and eventually just disappears. However, you have to have, it takes so long that the ones that are interesting are the what we call primordial black holes that are very small. All of them probably are gone because they evaporated. Uh, a black hole like the ones we I described here, they will be basically forever. Okay. And remember, we're not going to be here too long. <laughs> I'm talking as a Earth, you know. Uh, yes. Every time that you have a supernova explosion, there is a potential for the formation of a black hole, depending on the mass. If the, if the star, I mean, when the sun goes supernova, and that's when likely the, uh, the whole solar system will disappear, uh, it's likely that it will not leave behind a black hole. It will leave uh, what is called a neutron star. A neutron star is an object that has collapsed, but the gravity is not strong enough because there is not enough mass to keep collapsing into a black hole. But yes, they are still forming. If they are in isolation, yes. Okay. But so this one merge, and they, uh, eventually everything gets quiet, and then I. However, because of galaxies interact, okay, I didn't show a picture, of that, but galaxies there is evidence that galaxies collide, merge, and, and if there is a black hole inside of each of the galaxies, they will always be interacting. They will be interact with the gas uh, in, in, in the surroundings and all that. So. In that sense, those black holes are not isolated. The ones that are isolated are perhaps the ones that are like the ones uh, masses comparable to the sun. Well, we know that there was one in the center of the galaxy, and that is about 10 uh, kiloparsecs away from us, which you know, uh, about uh, 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 of the order of light years. I mean, so it's, it's uh, a uh, 10 or 30,000 light years. Now, we don't know where the closest is. It could be 
it could be that there is one coming very soon through the so that one of these isolated ones that it could be coming soon, but it's very very unlikely given the number of stars that we have in the in the neighborhood, and uh, we know how many stars are near the solar system. So if we make an estimate of how many of those went supernova, exploded and had a black hole, chances are that we're pretty safe. Uh, thing to worry is more uh, meteorites or asteroids. That one, chances are much higher. Before I started in black holes, I was doing cosmology, a little bit of cosmology. At that time, there were theories of higher dimensions, you know, and actually this, today are very popular again, that our universe is, what, 11 dimensions or something like that. So uh, that, it depends on how far you go uh, in, in the history of the universe. Cosmology is one of the most exciting fields right now in astronomy, and uh, Penn State is trying to hire several of them to have a very active area in cosmology. Because, again, observations, now the field is driven by, uh, by observations. It used to be when I was a graduate student that it was all these crazy theories and all. Now it's very, very interesting. The part that it still gets a little into the uh, uh, speculation of it is when you get to the to the Big Bang or even what happens before. Here in Penn State, there are uh, a group of researchers, actually the director of the institute uh, where we are, Avi Ashtaker, they do quantum cosmology. And uh, those are very, very interesting theories about how the universe uh, behaved very early. And actually, they, the theory that they have is that there is no Big Bang. And, uh, and, uh, but, so it depends on how far you go. Uh, in uh, in uh, the astronomy department, they tend to, we tend to stay in the department which is closer or near the observations. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you.